Is there room in your faith for grief? That's a question I want to talk about today. We are studying the book of Nehemiah. This incredible life in the Old Testament. And today's passage deals with grief. If you have your Bibles, meet me in Nehemiah chapter 2, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 10. Now, Nehemiah uh, lived 450 years before Christ, and God used him to rebuild Jerusalem and regather God's people and preserve a culture in which Jesus would one day live. We're studying his life uh, for those reasons. It, it, you would say, wouldn't you, this is a season of regathering. But regathering calls to mind a loss and grief. And Nehemiah teaches us something about this. So, as I read these verses, I want you to be listening for the theme of grief. As I read these verses, and as we consider our teaching... I want us to see how grief is real. I want us to see how grief brings risk. And then, I want us to see that God in our grief is the God of grief. He still governs in our grief. That's kind of where I'm going this morning. The reality of grief, the risk grief brings... And the God who governs in our grief. That's the direction today. And so I've titled our message, My Grief in the Good Hand of My God. Say that with me. My Grief in the Good Hand of My God. One more time. My Grief in the Good Hand of My God. Amen. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much Afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and let 
a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted what I asked. For the good hand of my God was upon me. And then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. This is God's word. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. <laughs> so, so the implication is that Nehemiah had been sad, just not in his presence. Did you get that? But, but to be clear, he'd been sad. Uh, for four months, I mean, it had been four months since Nehemiah had been blindsided by the news from his biological brother Hanani that Jerusalem's walls were still caved in, the gates were charred, the city was vulnerable, the temple was not secure, and Israel, Israel, once the crown jewel of the Mediterranean, now limped along with, with a landmass no larger than the size of Champaign County. Oh, the threat of national extinction was real. And Nehemiah's awareness of this news brought a burden which then brought grief. That's what we learn in chapter 1, verse 4, right? Remember, it says, I sat, I wept, I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed. And not just one verse, not just one day, four months, four months. So between the last word in chapter 1 and the first word in chapter 2, four months. That's winter. A winter of grief. A cold, gray, bone-chilling aching winter of grief that would not go away and nehemiah still had work to do didn't he he had duties and responsibilities he had to put his game face on right and and sometimes we have to do that you know surgeons still must operate on the sick Physicians must still see their patients. Teachers must still instruct their students. Plumbers still need to fix broken pipes. Do you think that your pastor has always walked up to this pulpit with unresolved conflict with his wife? <laughs> we still need to show up and do our job, right? Sometimes we've got to put that game face on. But, but, but beneath the game face throbbed a dull, aching grief. Have you been there? Are you there? I, it's an important question. Is there room in your faith for grief? 
And there's a lot of grief, a lot of types of grief, right? There's the, some of us are carrying the, the, the grief of guilt. If we could only turn back the clock, if we could only undo what had been done, but we can't. And still others of us carry the grief of betrayal. Someone you trusted hurt you deeply and you want to forgive, you are trying to forgive, you are forgiving, and at the same time, wounds need healing, and that takes time. I think many of us right here, right now, are carrying the grief of loss. A grief that says, I've lost something, I've lost someone important, and I need you. And we try to hide our grief out of embarrassment, or we don't want to be a burden to anyone. But the body keeps score. So when you experience grief or you're having a bad day, you know, do, do you feel guilty about that? Do you feel like if you had more faith or more of the Holy Spirit or more spiritual maturity, you, you wouldn't be feeling the grief you're feeling? I often, often wonder about that. And, and um, I often wonder about how we do church. Permit me, permit me for just a moment of just honest self-critique. Uh, you know, so we gather here in worship, and, and let's, let's admit it, we're in a cheerful part of town, and we're in a cheerful facility, and you know, we enter this cheerful space, and we hear cheerful words, welcome to Windsor Road, how's everybody doing, and things are just cheerful, you know, in an, in an extroverted sort of way, and, and the subtle message can be, you know, people who grieve need not apply, and I, I, let me quickly clarify, <laughs> I am not suggesting that we recruit Eeyore for our guest services, okay? Welcome. Hope you get something out of it. Probably won't. You never know. Accidents happen. Don't get me wrong. Jesus is risen, amen? amen. I'm just wondering, I'm just wondering though, is there room in your faith for grief? Do you have a place in your belief system for Christians to be sad or afraid or upset about any host of negative emotions? Must we repent of these things or can they be good and right and righteous? So one thing is for sure, Nehemiah's grief amplified his prayers. Though he could not worship in the temple, which was a thousand miles away, Nehemiah's prayer life became a sanctuary that brought him into the presence of God who is over all things. And so Nehemiah teaches us the difference between hopeless grief and hopeful grief. Now both involve tears, both involve hurt, both involve pain, both involve groaning, but hopeless grief has no place to go. Hopeless grief cries out, I've lost the only thing that makes life worth living. Hopeless grief. Hopeful grief cries out for something else. 
Hopeful grief amplifies the supreme worth of God. Hopeful grief testifies through the tears, through the sobbing, through the weeping, that nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Neither death, nor life, nor rulers, nor angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nothing at all creation can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Amen? Hopeful grief is not unbelief. Rather, hopeful grief is the essence of what faith is. And so hopeful grief teaches us six very important words. Lord, I trust you with this. Lord, I trust you with my spouse's death. And Lord, I trust you with my prodigal child. Lord, I trust you with my job loss. Lord, I trust you with my cancer. I trust you with my divorce. I trust you with my unknowns. I trust you to fill my emptiness. I trust you to supply sufficient grace. Lord, I trust you to walk with me. Is, is there room in your faith for grief? See, if so, you may find your grief preaching back at you. So in your grief, you come into the sanctuary of prayer, and in that service of the sanctuary of prayer, grief comes to the pulpit and says what grief said in Psalm 42.5, the psalmist grieved before God and grief preached back. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. <laughs> oh, yes. Grief is real. Grief is real. Nehemiah teaches us hopeful grief. He does. And, and, and we learn that, that grief can bring risk. <laughs> you see, I had not been sad in his presence before. <laughs> And it was springtime. That's the month of Nisan. Think end of March, early April. It's a beautiful season in Susa. Oh. And this may have had reference to the Persian New Year. Persia, the sole superpower. Oh, it's the New Year. Oh, break out the wine. Oh, look, look. His Majesty has the Queen at court she appears with him and they're hosting the finest of foods it's a king's feast and nehemiah said i had not been sad in his presence before and verse one says that wine was before king artaxerxes and nehemiah says i took up the wine and gave it to the king oh there's a protocol to this that i found so interesting the the bringing up of the wine there's a formality to it a, a kind of a, a ritual that the cup bearer uh, participated and performed in this in this ancient persian cup bearers ritual he he ladles this is before the court this is before his majesty the wine is brought up and he ladles the cupbearer ladles the wine before his majesty and then pours the label into his palm and then he drinks it and then waits there's the pause 
He's still standing. <laughs> and oh my goodness, all before his highness. And Nehemiah has done this. He's done this countless times. He did what he always did. And yet at this time, when the wine was presented to the king and Nehemiah ladled it and, and put it in his hands and swallowed it and waited, this time as it was brought up, Nehemiah heard these words from the throne. What's your problem? That's verse 2. Why is your face sad seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Nehemiah's grief was observed. And we're not told what triggered it. We don't know. But a wave of grief flooded Nehemiah. And for a moment he dropped his guard and he was caught in the act of grief. Verse 2 says, Then I was very much afraid. Nehemiah had reason to be afraid. <laughs> Protocols at courtside were strict and disciplined in order to keep the king alive. And predictability was a form of security. And if something just didn't feel right, well, that was, you know, that was, you know, that's a red alert. And, 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 Nehemiah paints Artaxerxes in a favorable light, but ancient history informs us that Artaxerxes was more like Michael Corleone than Fred Rogers. Artaxerxes had assumed the, the throne because of an assassination. Artaxerxes had assassinated his brother, then assassinated the man who assassinated his father. Artaxerxes did not pause to take life if there was a threat to his crown. And there's a very interesting piece of Persian art that kind of explains the protocols at court. I wanted to show you. This is from a relief, is what it's called, a relief, and that is dated back to just before the life of Nehemiah in the Persian Empire. You can see the king on the left, and then you can see uh, someone at court here approaching the king to the right. You notice where the person's hand is. The, ha the hand is over the mouth. Why is that? Several reasons. First, don't ever breathe on his highness. Mm-mm. You may have bad breath, and then you're not going to have any breath. You, so you cover your face as a sign of deference and respect. And then secondly, the only face that really matters at court is the king's face. <laughs> and and just, so just to serve at court side should be a privilege. And, and the king doesn't want, he doesn't want to see a sour-faced servant. He's got enough pressure as it is. Besides, it's springtime. It's a season of joy. And Nehemiah's face doesn't fit the occasion. And, and there's no, there's no, oh, I'm fine, everything is okay, everything is okay. No, 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 no. He better have an answer. And so the first words that come out of his mouth in verse 3 are words of assurance and loyalty and allegiance. Let the king live forever. I'm with you. I'm with you, Artaxerxes. I'm your loyal servant. I'm here to protect the crown. And then, and then he, he takes a deep breath, verse 3. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates 
have been destroyed by fire. Now, what a masterstroke of diplomacy. You see, Nehemiah knew about this issue of ancestral graves. If you go to Iran today, you can see archaeology. You can see the tomb of Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great. And you can also see other ancestral tombs. And it was important. Kings transferred power to family heirs by birth or adoption. And a desecrated tomb insults the royal family. So Nehemiah appeals to the king with a value that they shared. And, and then I want you to notice something very, very uh, intentional. You see that Nehemiah nowhere uses the name Jerusalem. Why is that? Well, it's because of Jerusalem's rebellious reputation. Uh, in Ezra chapter 4, verses 6 to 23, Ezra 4, 6 to 23, we read how Artaxerxes reacted to the enemies of Israel by halting construction of the city. And what Nehemiah needs is his boss to reverse a policy decision. But to do that would be a tacit admission of a mistake and who wants to tell their boss the king of a superpower that he made a mistake <laughs> but Artaxerxes is no fool verse 4 says what is it you are requesting and before Nehemiah states his request he has a conversation with someone else you see that I love that verse 4 so I prayed to the God of heaven Nehemiah realizes that his persevering prayer over this winter season of grief is about to be answered. God is opening a door right here in this moment, in the most unpredictable moment. Nehemiah got up that morning and he didn't realize that he was gonna, that, that, that morning was going to be the morning that God would answer his prayer. God, I come to you in grief only to learn that you are the Lord of my grief. You still govern in my grief. Artaxerxes may be the king of earth, but you, O oh God, are the Lord of heaven. That's why I love Psalm 119, verse 91. Your judgments stand firm today. And then the psalmist says this. This is beautiful. For all things are your servants. For all things are your servants. Would you say that last part of that verse for me? Here we go. For all things are your servants. All things. And that includes all of your things. And that includes all of your grief. Your grief. Your grief is God's servant. And right there, right then... <laughs> king says what are you requesting and nehemiah whips out the strategic plan out of his back pocket and he tells his king what he'd like verse five i said to the king if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to judah to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And, and then in verses 7 and 8 he says, I'm going to need some purchase orders for supplies. and I'm going to need some travel papers with your signature. I'm just going to need your credit card, boss. <laughs> yeah. 
well, how long will you be gone? Well, my plan is to be gone this long. And, and did you notice in verse 6, it says, the queen was sitting beside him. That didn't hurt. No, that didn't hurt. <laughs> oh, and here's something else. Ancient history teaches us at that time, Egypt was a rising threat to the Persian Empire. So Israel's vulnerability emboldened Egypt. But a strong Israel with a fortified wall and a revived economy and a populated city would serve as a buffer to Persia. So it all made sense. King says, okay, well, do you have a pen on you? Yes, my Lord. Well, give it here. And it, that's it. At the, at the stroke of a pen, it was done. In fact, Artaxerxes gives Nehemiah more than what Nehemiah asks. We learn in verse 9 that the king had sent with Nehemiah officers of the army and horsemen. There it is. And Nehemiah is off to Jerusalem. <laughs> but hear me. Listen, had Nehemiah not been faithful with the few things, he would not have been entrusted with this great thing. Had he not been faithful with his everyday unseen duties, faithful in the mundane, faithful in the routine, faithful in the 10,000 little acts of industry and loyalty and integrity, then he never would have been prepared for the opportunity that came his way. So in your grieving and in your praying and in your fasting and in your mourning, it is important for you to be faithful, to show up to work on time, to do your job, and then to do it with integrity and industry and loyalty. Paul tells us this in Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Be faithful in those 10,000 little mundane acts that nobody else may see but God sees. Oh yes, hopeful grief is real. And hopeful grief brings risk. And the risk is that we turn inward and wallow. But Nehemiah shows us that his grief pushed him back out into the world. A world still governed by the good hand of God. And here is where I want you to see just from word choice. Word choice. You see, in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 1, and in verse 2, and in verse 3, the word sad is literally the Hebrew word bad. Why is your heart bad? This can be nothing but badness of heart. And Nehemiah says, why should not my face be bad? See, Well, then in the back part of Nehemiah, there's this word good, literally good. And that shows up in verse 5. If it pleases the king, pleases is literally, is it good? If it's good to the king and then in verse 6, so it was good to the king. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, verse 7. And then in verse 8, for the good hand of my God. And what Nehemiah is just telling us, even stylistically, you know, you know word choice. 
is that my bad grief and my bad days and my, my hard times are always still in the good hand of God. So here's a big idea. Hopeful grief. Hopeful grief. Hopeful grief prays, weeps, washes, and walks. That's what hopeful grief does. Hopeful grief prays. Take your grief to God. Start with God. Continue with confession. And state your request. That's what we learned in Nehemiah 1. And you just keep doing this. You just keep knocking. You just keep praying. Jesus said we should always pray and never give up. Because here's the deal. You never know. You don't. I don't. Only God knows. Only God knows when your Nehemiah chapter 1 becomes Nehemiah chapter 2. Pray. Then weep. Weep. Weep deeply. Sob. Mourn. Cry. Lament. Grief is a form of protest. Grief says, God, I don't like this. God, I trust you with this. I trust you with this. Pray, weep, and then wash. Wash your face. You go to the sink, and you rinse your face, and you wipe your, ears dry, uh, your eyes dry, and then you put the towel back on the rack because you're not a messy. And then walk. Walk in faith. Right, left, right, left, right, left. Church family, the character of a life is not set in two or three dramatic moments. It's not. Our culture would have you try to dream and scheme for that one way to, it's just like shoots and ladders, right? That little game, huh? We just want to find that bladder that'll take us all the way up to the top and that's just not it it's not oh it happens so very rarely that we think it happens regularly but it doesn't the character of your life is not set in those two or three dramatic moments the character of your life is set in the 10,000 little moments and and the character that was formed in those 10,000 little moments that's what shapes how you respond to the big moments of life so let the words of your grief speak but never louder than the word of God Nehemiah's grief led him to the throne of God but he didn't stay there did he at God's appointed time Nehemiah's grief pushed him out into the world because his grief was ultimately not about himself it it was about others. And Nehemiah realized that God's answer to prayer would require Nehemiah to put skin in the game and leave the palace of Susa, the comfortable palace of Susa, where good wine was served and good food was eaten. But Nehemiah is going to leave that to go to Israel, a people group under suspicion and oppression 
and a people group that needs a bridge builder. They need a go-between. They need someone who will lead the way, someone who will show the reality of God in this life, someone who will say, here is what a reconciled people look like. Here is what persevering prayer does. Here is what hopeful grief is. And listen, the process for this to happen will involve depending on the very people that we're trying to share Christ with. Isn't that ironic? Israel needs Persia's help. Nehemiah needs the help of a pagan king. We have to depend on our neighbors. And sometimes the best way to witness for Christ is just to simply ask your unbelieving neighbor for a cup of sugar. And when Jesus sent the 70 out on their preaching mission, what did he say? He said, take nothing with you. No resources, no money. Rely on the hospitality of where I send you. Where's your grief leading you? Who's it leading you to lean on and talk to? So, so, so hopeful grief does not eliminate tears. It redeems them. So pray, weep, wash, and walk. Because God is faithful. If you're in the valley of the shadow of death, you're not by yourself. Jesus is with you. He went there before you. You see, centuries later, outside that city that Nehemiah rebuilt, Jesus would go to a place, Gethsemane, where there was a garden, a garden park, and Jesus would pray, and Jesus would weep, and Jesus' tears washed his face, and then he walked straight to that Roman cross, and in his death, burial, and resurrection, he showed us in no uncertain terms that God is the Lord of grief. God still governs in my grief. And, and so he says to us, I've been there and I know what it's like on the other side. And you are not alone. I am with you and I will never forsake you. So follow me. Follow me. Do what I did. Pray, weep, wash, and walk. Because the best is yet to come. Amen.